0: Stephen, welcome back to the Australian Investors Podcast. Thanks for having me back, Owen. So in the previous episode, we talked about Costco and you introduced us to the way you invest and how you think about owning 15 fantastic companies. Uh, And I would encourage anyone, if this is the first time you've heard Stephen, please go back and listen to that episode because it sets the scene for this. Today, we're going to talk about LVMH. We're gonna talk about um, how you think about investing through periods of uncertainty as well. and Again, we're gonna talk about those quality factors alongside fundamental drivers of business and value creation. Uh, So for the the first question though, I I thought I'd mix it up a bit and get your perspective on basically how you see the role of computers, machines, things like this that play a role in investing nowadays. It seems like a lot of people are concerned that the ability to buy and sell stocks. I know we talk about businesses, but people still phrase it as a stock or a share. How do you see the role of that playing into what we do in terms of active uh, management and actively picking companies to invest in? A great question. We're in an era of ever uh, ease of access to data and more and
1: more computing power. So I think we would say that Um, all of that is, is helpful to the investor, but it's not a substitute for judgment. Um, Mm. all a computer or a database can tell you is what has happened. Um, and judgment is about, well, how do I, uh, take the lessons of history and and my understanding of a business and, and make reasonable projections about what it can accomplish in the future. Uh, so I think the history is helpful, but ultimately we're making judgments about the future. And we're a bit like I often think there's some good analogies or many good analogies between businesses and people when we we have to assess businesses like you assess the character traits of an individual, Uh, the more time you spend looking at them, the longer the period that you observe their behavior over all of those helps inform your judgment about what can I reasonably expect in the future. Uh, So ultimately, we're in the business of making judgments and data and analytics and computers uh, can't do that as well as people can.
0: Mm. Yeah, because we talked about um, just off air a minute ago how you could, uh, if you wanted to, you can invest in an index fund or an ETF and you can get the market uh, very low cost. It's all automated basically behind the scenes. But then we talked about Costco in the previous example and how the feeling that you get when you walk into the store, I don't think... Personally, I don't think a machine could ever try and capture that because, um, and that's what ultimately leads. That's what puts the numbers on the balance sheet and on the, the PL, right? Absolutely. A lot of what matters, like the, the PL is an
1: imperfect representation of economic reality, first and foremost, and a lot of the, the foundations to the PL or the economic outcomes. Are not observable by screens. And so, as you said, we'd be, in making our judgments about a business like Costco, we'd be looking about member satisfaction, employee satisfaction, employee retention rate, competitive conditions, uh, management culture, mm. uh, all of those things ultimately express themselves through the PL. But if you observe the PL, Uh, without understanding the foundations, then I think you end up with a very superficial assessment and we want to make sort of deep, rich, well-informed judgments uh, which will give us um, the
0: foundations for more confident and hopefully more reliable judgments. Mm. One of the things that I think uh, a lot of people that study, say Warren Buffett, um, talk about, uh, you know, he went through these different stages of his investing and it probably wasn't until he met Charlie Munger that, He was really impressed upon him the value of intangible things, intangible assets that accounting maybe hasn't caught up with. So, was that what you were referring to when you said it's imperfect?
1: Uh, Well, it is imperfect in lots of ways. Um, There might be a big difference between what a company spends in capital expenditure, which gets capitalised, and and depreciation, which goes through the the Mm. P&L, the accounting standards about uh, how stock option compensation is expensed, and how companies adjust for restructuring charges. Uh, they might differ between companies. They might differ between countries. And so we have to look at those and, and make our best judgment about which of those expenses and revenue items do we need to make adjustments for to get closer to what we think is is an economic reality. Uh, ultimately, we, we own uh, ca- the cash flows of a business. We don't own net profit after tax, and there can be a large difference between the two. Mm. Uh, so it is, it's a good to, to start, but it's not the ending point.
0: Mm. There was a... Uh, A quarterly letter, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes. So for anyone who is interested in diving deep in this, because there were a lot of numbers surrounding this and a lot of uh, research that went into this. There was a quarterly report that you did, uh, the team did uh, on founder-led businesses. And this might be one of those things where um, the qualitative research, i.e. not the things that you can get in a database, show through in the investment outcome. Um, Can you talk to why... Or how founder-led companies tend to perform differently, uh, in your opinion, to non-founder-led businesses?
1: Yeah, well, I think there are maybe perhaps there are there are two uh, variations of founder-led businesses. There are founder-led businesses where the founder is still involved and. And the one we're going to talk to, I think it's a good example of that. And then there are businesses where the, there's a strong founder imprint. And Costco, perhaps, is a good example of that. The, the gentleman, Jim Senegal, that created Costco is no longer working for the company, but he's left a very, very deep and long-lasting mm. set of culture and values and operating processes that are really strongly inform how the business operates, including how it operates through the pandemic. So culture and character, just like an individual, is so important. Um, in making assessments about what can we expect going forward, we want a culture that's set of values that's that's durable, uh, that that um, that doesn't that the business doesn't stray from. Um, Costco is a is a good example that business is totally committed to operating according to the set of foundations and principles that the founder built the business on, and that, that there are others where the founder is still involved. Mm. But the sort of outcomes that perhaps that can inform is is long-term thinking. Uh, businesses that um, that have been around a long time and and look forward a long time, um, and how the the company perhaps treats its employees and how it treats its customers, and sometimes perhaps in founder-led businesses you can get better outcomes than those which ultimately in, inform you know, healthy, durable growth in ways that perhaps a more commercial enterprise uh, isn't able to achieve.
0: It seems like just in with speaking to you over the years, it seems to me that employee culture plays a huge role in the way you think about businesses um is that true like do you do this for every company you want to study multiple levels of management um how like how do you get that insight i guess as well
1: i think well cu- culture is hugely important and i think the pen it's become more important through the pandemic um it's also it will express itself in The the way businesses make decisions, what's important to them? Is it how fast you grow or how long you can grow for? Um, Is it how much profit you can squeeze out of the next transaction? Now, I'll give you a fun fact for Costco. They have an internal rule that they won't mark up any product by more than 13%. Now um, they could make a different choice, but if they bought something for a dollar, it won't be on the shelf for anything more than a dollar thirteen. Now that's very unusual in retail. Uh, markups of thirty or forty percent is typical, and it's only the culture that keeps them to adhering to that. They're very, very committed to delivering great value to their paying members, and they could easily say, "Well, you know, if we made a dollar fourteen or a dollar fifteen, who would know?" Um, but they would know. And once you start deviating from your principles, it's a very slippery slope. And so they are totally committed to not only making modest markups that deliver value to their customers but working hard to deliver more value the next year how can we get that that one dollar item the cost is a dollar this year how can we make it cost 99 cents next year and then we'll pass that one cent on to the customers and they'll get even more value and then we'll those customers will spend more money with us and Mm. we'll get more customers and it creates a virtual circle Uh, so culture is is a set of values and principles that informs how the business uh, acts um how uh it informs our assessment of risk how likely is a business to veer off course um, and um, in terms of employees it's so important the last few years we've gone through a period where uh, it's hard to hire people mm. and so businesses that treat their employees well are hugely advantaged um, when when wage inflation is going up costco has always since its founding always paid its employees well above the minimum, minimum wage so it was a great position to start with uh, and then when um, uh, customers are shopping in the store, if there aren't enough employees, the customers get a bad shopping experience. The shelves aren't stocked uh, mm. because there aren't employees to st- stock it there. And, and ultimately the members, members would leave. In the case of Costco, they want a lot of new business uh, because of how well the store was serviced and, and, and staffed. And that all comes down to culture and the values and the operating principles of the business. And mm. so it's huge. The, m- the longer term you are as an investor, the more it matters. Uh, and through difficult conditions, I think it matters even more.
0: I, I heard a story, and I don't know. This could be just an urban myth, Stephen. You may know the answer to this off the top of your head. But I heard a story once that during the GFC, Costco increased wages because they wanted to reassure their staff, basically just to reassure the staff that everything's okay. Still come to work. We're going to keep serving our customers. I don't know if that. I don't know if you heard that or. Uh, maybe I'm just making that up on the spot, but I, it's, I think that story, and I heard this years ago, illustrated the way the company thinks about its team members.
1: It would be very consistent with their operating principles. And through, the, through 2020, they were very early in giving employees um, bonuses because they know that they're, they're working in stress mm. conditions. Um, uh, they spent a lot of money on sanitation conditions, so employees felt safe working there, uh, that ultimately helped customers feel safe shopping there. Um, and as we've entered an era of inflation, Costco have been very much on the front foot at increasing their 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 wages, and so employees feel like you know this remains a good place to work. I don't have to go looking elsewhere uh, when their competitors down the road uh, mm. are struggling with with hiring enough people to keep their stores staffed and, and the shelves stocked. Mm.
0: S- Stephen, you're coming up on five years with ARS now, um, and over all those time periods, things have looked pretty good and you have had a very good outcome for your investors Uh, but in that time people will be wondering you've got you've built up you've built out your team which we'll talk to in a little bit but you've probably come across so many companies you know you've got a global mandate so you you can shop anywhere so to speak Uh, I'm curious to know with just 15 companies or so in the portfolio at any one time Can you give us any sense of how many companies you've looked at in that time and how many ultimately made it into the portfolio? Sure. Well, we we probably look at around 60 new businesses each year. Okay. uh,
1: And of which we find that about 15 of those are good enough to come into what we consider our bench or our wish list, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, and over the last five, we have a maximum of 15 stocks in our portfolio, which is unusual, but allows us to be very discerning when it comes to the mm-hmm. qualities of the business. And uh, there are not too many businesses out there that are as good as a Costco and as good as an Accenture and as, as, as good as a um, LVMH, which we'll talk to. Um, but over those five years, we've we've bought and sold about four per year. So since our uh, inception about five years ago, we've owned about thirty-five, uh, and there's there's, uh, there's fifteen of those in the portfolio today.
0: That's um, such a when you think that's such a small number when we talk about um, global investors and global fund managers. That's stark contrast to what a lot of them would be turning over their portfolio at.
1: It allows us not only to be very exacting in the qualities of the business that we own, but very patient Mm. Uh, if we're only buying a new stock every three months. It allows us to be very considered in uh, making judgments about which business comes in to the portfolio. It allows us to be very selective um, among our opportunities, which one is, is good enough, which one is the best alternative to come into the portfolio. It allows us to watch businesses for a long time. Uh, before they come into the portfolio, and time is our friend. And much like people, the longer you've observed an mm. individual, the, the more likely you make a good assessment of their character. You're never perfect; people always surprise you. Um, but a, a judgment formed over years is going to be a more informed, more reliable judgment than one form informed over weeks. And so, for all that, it works well for us, it allows us, as I said, to be you know, patient, thoughtful, um, as selective and exacting uh, by owning relatively few stocks.
0: Mm. Before we get to uh, LVMH, I'm hoping maybe, you, this is something that we just spoke about off air, which I did want to bring into the conversation. Just do a quick uh, thing that I, I've always been curious about is how, as a as a fund manager in global markets, you actually execute your trades. So for all, most of us listening to this, we think, yeah, I use, you know, Comsec or Stake or SelfWealth or one of these brokerage platforms and I just go and buy the shares if they're available. But how do you do it as a fund manager? And how does, how does that differ to what the experience we have? Um, well, uh, the way we do it is we do it um, uh,
1: simply and we bear the cost. And by that, I mean that when we buy and sell shares, if we're buying some more shares of Costco for the portfolio uh, tonight or tomorrow night, then we don't try and add value through picking the the micro peaks and the micro troughs through the share prices of the day. Uh, We just get the average of the day. We're not seeking to add value um, through uh, timing and execution. We're seeking to add value by buying the best businesses. Now that's number one. Uh, Number two, when we execute a trade, we don't pay a execution fee that embeds sell-side research. We don't get any sell-side research. Uh, we, We do it ourselves and so we don't pay for research. Um, We just pay a very small fee that represents the execution cost. And number three, the fee we do pay is invoiced to AORUS. Uh, It's very unusual um, in in this industry, Um, but we don't layer on extra costs to investors. They pay as a management fee and everything Mm. else from the rent in our office to our employee salaries, our travel uh, and all the costs involved in running our unit trust, including the cost involved in buying and selling shares is our cost.
0: And that's what struck me as um, unique because you're not passing that cost back to your investors. You're absorbing it yourself as the business um, and you're investing on behalf of your investors, which I think aligns your interests with the fund investors. Very much. Uh, Conventionally in our industry, um, out of the investor's
1: return comes at execution cost, which in most cases, It's a cost to investors that includes sell-side research Mm -hmm. um, but we view the cost of research as our own we employ our own analysts and when we're buying and selling shares that's our cost and so Mm -hmm. we don't burden our investors
0: with with those extras uh, which most fund managers do yeah and for anyone listening um fund managers often have relationships with sell-side research firms where they can get the research as part of a a deal that they do so this is very unique that's why i bring into the conversation Stephen, hopefully, we can talk about a business which illustrates um, the way you think about markets, the way you think about finding interesting companies and people, um, which is LVMH. Uh, Can you talk us through the business at a high level? People will know the brands, but maybe they don't know the breadth uh, of the brands and and how it all comes together.
1: Well, I mean, uh, breadth is a great feature of the business. It operates across many, many categories of luxury goods from Uh, Wines and Spirits through the Moet Chandon and and Hennessy brands of cognac, Uh, fashion and leather brands like Louis Vuitton and and Christian Dior, uh, perfumes and cosmetics. Uh, It owns wonderful jewellery brands like Tiffany and Bulgari uh, and specialty retail stores like Sephora. Uh, And it does all of that across most countries in the world. So it's got this robustness and breadth that comes from owning lots of brands that uh, as opposed to many luxury brand competitors it might just be a single brand. They're doing one thing. Uh, mm. and it's a much narrower, inherently more fragile business. Uh, and those brands brands have been around a long, long time. The Louis Vuitton brand uh, that is so associated with the company is, was founded in 1854. Mm. Uh, and part of what makes a brand special is, is heritage yeah. and you can't go out and, and you can't create that. Mm. Uh, so the, the barriers to entry in this business are enormously high. Uh, people are attracted to to stories and history and heritage as well as the, the quality, the way those brands are presented through the stores at Louis Vuitton. You can't buy those, those uh, um, brands in uh, um, a department store. Hmm. You go to their own store and you can go to Collins Street in Melbourne or King Street in Sydney and see... The Louis Vuitton or Christian Deer stores, and that's part of the magic. Uh, they control the presentation of the brands. They control the pricing. They control the service proposition because they're they're their employees, mm. uh, not a department store's employees. That vertical integration is part of the specialness of the business.
0: Yeah, you, I, I feel like in a previous video or maybe it was a write up that was on the website, um, we we talked about. Uh, L'Oreal, and we talked about different businesses in, in beauty and uh, cosmetics and those types of industries, how the size and scale of one of these businesses actually keeps out competitors. There might be all of these new brands emerging, but like you said, it's the heritage that kind of creates the moat. Are there any way other ways you think about um, like the competitive, the durable competitive advantage that, that surrounds this business?
1: Well, size and scale is a huge advantage. And it just so happens that in early December, The Christian Dior brand did a fashion show Mm. outside the pyramids in Egypt, and there are very few brands that would get permission to do that. So just the ability to pull it off is amazing and fly all the journalists and celebrities there on site to pull off something that the company expects will get 100 million views online, enormously powerful. And that's what comes with... Uh, size and scale and just the wow, the impact factor, as well as management's ability to think creatively, mm. um, think about um, you know, um, really unusual special events that attract a lot of attention. Uh, so that's size and scale heritage, but it's also the long term minded management. And uh, we talked about founder led businesses and uh, this business is run by the Arno family and they think in decades. Uh, which is simply not the way that most listed commercial businesses think. And and through the pandemic, they're able to uh, express that long-term thinking by uh, keeping their investment in their brands at a high level, not cancelling fashion and runway shows in 2021 where some of their competitors were, were pulling back um, and then the brand suddenly kind of loses the, the relevance, it's not as front of mind to consumers. And mm. so for those reasons, L'Oreal has grown very, st- LVMH grew very strongly, mm. not only in 2020 and 2021, but in 2022, um, their sales growth has been about 20%, which is more than twice the rate at which the Gucci brand has grown mm. um, and far in excess of the global luxury goods market. Uh, so another strong year drawing on those attributes of sort of heritage management's long-term thinking Um, and the the size and scale and the ability to pull off big events.
0: How how much, you mentioned industry growth there, how much uh, does that play into your thinking around investment theses and the long-term runway of a company? Well, growth matters. It's hard for a business to become
1: more valuable over time if it's simply treading water. Mm. So growth, uh, it helps to be in an industry which is probably growing somewhat faster than GDP. But we like that LVMH for a long period of time has done even better than that. Um, Across the most individual brands grow faster than their category and the the LVMH company that embodies all of those brands grows significantly faster than the luxury uh, industry in total. And so we can see the brands outperforming their peers with um, Louis Vuitton and Christian Dior, as well as uh, the likes of Hennessy, Mm. which has become the world's largest selling spirits. Um, And going back to breadth, even in 2022, when uh, China's been in lockdown for a lot of that period, and it's obviously an important market for LVMH and travelling Chinese is important as well. But the geographic breadth of the business has meant that um, uh, geographies like Europe have been... Firing this year and Latin America and uh, the United States have been very strong. Mm. So in a period where China's not really contributing to growth, that 20% growth for the whole business this year really draws on that geographic breadth and strength.
0: Mm. Um, how do you think about acquisitions in the context of this? Because they have so many great brands. Would uh, Normally like when we've spoken before, you've mentioned that big acquisitions can be a bit of a tripping hazard. But how do you think about a business like this that seems to have an ability to integrate multiple brands and unify them? Is Would that be a red flag for you? Well, the history,
1: history over time has been very good. Uh, they tend to do smallish ones you know, every year or two. Mm-hmm. And a cashmere um, a brand called Lorna Piana, which they bought for a billion euros a few years ago, is an example of that. Small in the context of the business. And then they perhaps do... A mid-size acquisition once or twice a decade uh, in 2020, they bought Tiffany for $16 billion, still modest in the context of the size of the group. It might constitute you know, three or 4% of sales of the business. But pleasingly, what they've been able to do since they've bought the business is, is significantly strengthen it, revitalise it. Uh, it, it's, it's um, become more contemporary. They've been able to connect to younger consumers um, make, give a bit more excitement back to the brand, smarten up the stores, and this is still relatively early in their ownership. So much like they did with the Bulgari mm. jewellery brand in 2012, uh, through their ownership they've been out, and their long-term thinking, uh, they've been able to invest in the business and and add value through um, their investment, their long-term commitment, uh, and make those acquisitions a, a good use of shareholder capital.
0: Mm, yeah, great. I, I think that people can start to picture it like I am in my head of that scale playing out in multiple ways. So it's not just through distribution like here in Sydney, you go to George Street or King Street or wherever, um, but it's also in the sense of when one of these other businesses falter or show weakness, um, they can use that, the, the capital in the business available to them, whether it's public markets, debt markets, whatever, and they can use that to their advantage and opportunistically buy another great brand to add to the stable i feel like that's a that's a structural advantage of this business as well
1: they can do that in, in ways that perhaps if the brand was family owned they wouldn't have the capital to draw on mm. um, or if they're publicly owned as tiffany was perhaps public shareholders don't have the long-term thinking that um can be uh, permitted under lv majors long-term uh, uh ownership mm. um and also um talent moves between brands in an interesting way so the brands aren't all siloed, it's not like a federation of brands that all operate independently within the Louis Vuitton empire. People frequently move across brands and and so there's a, a ready talent pool mm. um, that the company's got to draw on to perhaps inject some new energy into businesses that need a bit of a help um, across their, their many other successful brands.
0: How do you think about um, the the risk in terms of management? Do you see, that's obviously a strength of the business, but could that strength become a weakness if there is there adequate succession or things like this? It's a really good question, and it's a it's an integral question when we're talking about family
1: businesses. I think. Uh, Mr. Arno has said that one of his five children will succeed him. He's 73, I think, now and mm. seems to have plenty of energy. He seems to regularly play tennis with Roger Federer. Um, <laughs> so he's he's fit and committed, um, but he, of course, won't be there forever. So I think it's likely that one of his five children, all of whom are with the business and all of whom are with, have been with the business a long time, will be their successor. Uh, so we're comfortable with that. We think that the, the benefits of family ownership, that culture, that long-term mindedness will be preserved through that uh, generational succession. Uh, But it's also evident that it's not only about the family. Across their many successful brands, there's many, many talented managers that have contributed to their growth. Um, So I think there are some some businesses where it's all about the founder. Uh, I don't think that's the case uh, here. Mm. And we think there's good succession um, in place as well as uh, a deep talent pool outside of the immediate family.
0: Yeah, it's um, more of a family intergenerational business, um, which is very unique as well. Um, Stephen, the... the one thing that we touched on in the the first discussion, the first episode that we did together, uh, was shifting the fund uh, to the ASX, allowing investors to access the ASX, uh, via, uh, the fund via the ASX, rather. Um, so that will be great. I'll put all the links in the show notes there. But one thing you've also done to over time since I've known you, is you you've set up the business and you've recruited pretty well. And one of the things that I'm curious to know is how do you find analysts and investors, like what do they have to do to work for AORS, like what are the, the traits and how do you go through that process to find people?
1: Uh, it's a, well, it's a good set of questions. So, so what makes a good investor? Uh, what makes a good investor for us? Um, there's, a, there's a long set of attributes, <laughs> a bit like we're looking for, what makes a quality company? Uh, there's multiple attributes, you've got to tick a lot of boxes. Um, so I think the first thing is to be intellectually curious. Um, you know, why do things work this way? I want to I learn, I want to discover. Um, get it, be excited by peeling back the layers and understanding uh, why things are as they are, um, number one. Uh, number two is to um, be collegiate. We don't operate, a bit like uh, LVMH, we don't operate as a federation, a set of silos of individual um, analysts, we, we like to share ideas and work well together. Yeah, uh, that's hopefully that's part of our secret sauce. Uh, <laughs> number three is people that like to, to straddle their knowledge across very different businesses. Uh, some fund management operations set themselves up as industry experts. And people like just having perhaps a pretty narrow view of the world, we like to have a broad view of the world. And that some suits some people better than others. Mm-hmm. Um, I think number three is to straddle an ability to have a view. Uh, which requires some um, sort of confidence but also recognise that I could be wrong um, and that's that sort an of intersection of, if you like humility and confidence is not an easy one to, to strike. Mm. Um, being open-minded that the next thing I learn might challenge my prior hypothesis uh, whereas behave, we know that we're all humans and we've all got behavioural biases and it's easier to stick rigidly to our prior conclusion than recognise that you know perhaps I could be wrong or perhaps I need to see things differently. Mm. Um, so there and and, um, uh, perhaps lastly is that we're in a business where our investors and prospective investors have got lots of choices and we have to be committed to uh, delivering attractive long-term outcomes to our clients at the end of the day it's a performance business and we want to generate good performance Mm.
0: when you that's you touched on something there which is like humility which I think the longer you do this the more you realize that's important And this could apply equally to the companies and the management teams, or to the team and how you recruit. What what is a what is something that tells you that someone has humility?
1: Um, it's a good question. So, in a bit like for, for businesses, we don't set standards that are, that are presume perfection. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, like. Um, we have to recognise that we'll do a great job for our clients if we get most things right, not all things right. And mm. so at any point in time, we have to be hungry for disconfirming evidence. Uh, so perhaps it's an individual's um, willingness to, to look for how it could be wrong, yeah. how how they uh, assess new information. Are they you know, looking to shine the light on things that might perhaps confirm a prior th- hypothesis as opposed to things that might might challenge it. Mm. Um, and then once I've seen it, am I, willing, am I willing to then take a step and change my mind and recommend a portfolio decision that might feel uncomfortable but ultimately be uh, the best use of capital? Mm. Uh, so all those things can be behaviourally hard, but they can also be liberating to, to, to recognise that I don't have to be right all the time, that's not natural, that's not the standards that we set. Um, but I, I do want to look for you know, where I... Um, among all the decisions in the portfolio or all, all my recommendations, something in there is probably mm. a needs a needs a rethink which one is it?
0: Mm. Yeah, the intellectual honesty, isn't it? It's just it's so important. Um, and particularly with you, with the team of analysts, you need to know that they're they're looking for that. And that you're probing them to to test those hypotheses, because otherwise, you know, you'll never get to the truth or some a- approximation of the truth.
1: And yeah, it, it all ties back to a intellectual curiosity and a hunger to keep learning mm. uh, so i think if you're um you know, perhaps there are some sporting people that think that whenever they lose a game it's the umpire's fault or mm-hmm. that's it's, the, it's the, the the light conditions or the wind was going the wrong way perhaps and if you explain it the way to external factors you never never learn and so the only way that we can learn is to uh, recognize where we can be wrong internalize those those lessons um, you know, recognize that it's that It's natural. It's okay. Business conditions change. We might have misappraised something, but let's see it. Let's uh, internalise the lessons from it and take that forward. Uh, That's really integral to... This is a a pursuit that blesses us with an opportunity to keep learning through our entire career. Uh, There's no such thing as stasis. Nobody's mastered this. So if you're excited by that proposition, that helps the notion of where can I um, learn new mental models? How can I see things differently? Uh, How can I... Um, look at a business that I might know well, and discover something new or a different way of seeing it, and also, um, you know, where in my assessment might I be wrong?
0: Mm, yeah, I really, I really like that explanation. Um- So I'll put links in the show notes to the owner's manual, which we referenced in the first discussion. I think that's um, imperative to understand how you think about markets and investing generally. But this last question I have for you is something that's a bit more topical, a bit more timely, which is that over the last few years, Stephen, we've had a pandemic, a global pandemic. We've had ultra low interest rates, rising interest rates, rising inflation, and basically everything in between. So has this, as you look forward, has this changed the way you think about investing your investment process? And I would say, in a, is it dramatically different? Is it fundamentally different to what you were doing before this?
1: Well, uh, we're always trying to take a, a very consistent, homogenous investment strategy, and improve our execution of it. Uh, number one, so there every year, there's lessons to be learned about decisions we made, um, perhaps uh, opportunities missed? How could we have, have reached a different conclusion and um, and things that we did that we shouldn't have done? So there's always let's le- lessons to be learned. But I think the key lesson for us through the last three years is a reaffirmation of the value of quality businesses. I can't think of a better place to have capital over a long-term investment horizon, let's call it five to seven years, than businesses that have been around a long time, businesses that win competitively, businesses mm. that grow, businesses that earn high rates of profitability. They're conservatively financed and conservatively managed. Uh, That's what the Aorus portfolio is all about. And in the challenging conditions of the last couple of years, we've seen quality businesses like that really shine. If 2023 is another challenging year, I can't think of a better set of attributes to populate your portfolio with. And as we project forward, uh, further forward beyond 2023 in terms of how best to protect and grow your wealth, uh, I can't think of a better set of attributes than quality
0: expressed, to the very high standards that we set. Mm, I think that's great. Well, listeners, you can keep an eye out for, for Aorus in your brokerage account now, which is fantastic. If you do wanna learn more, head to the Aorus website. Uh, Stephen, I really do appreciate you taking the time to come across the city here and, and lend some of your insights to us on the show. Thank you, Owen.